Now, if I said I was looking at newspapers, and those newspapers described a recession characterized by a mortgage meltdown, bank failures, a stock market plunge, the ripple effects of European affairs, and a protracted period of high unemployment, what do you think the date on the front page would be? <laughs> All right, well, you might say it's been any day in the past few years. <clears throat> but the fact that I'm actually referring to events following the Panic of 1873 suggests just how germane today's speaker's topic truly is. In his new book, A Nation of Deadbeats, An Uncommon History of America's Financial Disasters, our speaker charts the inglorious but important succession of panics, recessions, and depressions that have been a part of our past since the very founding of this country. Now, bound up in this history are stories of national banks funded by smugglers, fistfights in Congress over the gold standard, America's early dependence on British bankers, and how presidential campaigns were forged in controversies over private debt. Now, sometimes the connection between history and the present and the lessons that can be learned to shape our actions today are unclear. But I think you'll see in this case that some knowledge of the past would be awfully helpful to today's politicians, business leaders, media figures, and all of us in the broader public. Scott Reynolds Nelson is the Leslie and Naomi Legum Professor of History at the College of William and Mary. He is the prize-winning author of several books, including Iron Confederacies, Southern Railways, Clan Violence and Reconstruction, Steel Driving Man, and most recently, A Nation of Deadbeats. Now, some of you may remember his captivating banner lecture on John Henry, The Steel Driving Man, which he delivered here in 2010. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Scott Nelson, who will speak to us today about A Nation of Deadbeats, An Uncommon History of America's Financial Disasters. Thanks so much. Um, I want to, rather than stepping you through every panic, we'd be here for two or three hours, um, I want to talk to you today about some of the things that I learned as I was writing this book. Uh, I, I should say I started out doing financial history as an undergraduate and a graduate student, and I did a lot of very arcane um, economic history, the, the discounting sterling bills of exchange, understanding the price agios of gold, and all these sorts of things. I um, I thought in 1994 and 95, as I was doing these, when am I ever going to need to know this stuff? No one cares anymore about international liquidity problems. Or, uh, well, it turns out uh, <laughs> that uh, it's sometimes a graduate school comes back to bite you. And, uh, and that's, so that's I wanted, what I want to talk about today. When I first taught the US survey, the genesis of this book is when I first taught the US survey, uh, at William and Mary, I had never taken the U.S. survey. Uh, I'd taken all sorts of other history classes, and so I had to kind of teach it from what I knew, and so I taught it as financial panic to financial panic, because I knew a lot about uh, the other financial panics, having studied them in graduate school. And that's, uh, as I was uh, thinking about how this book would work, I uh, went back to those notes and realized, as I started to look a little more closely at the primary and secondary sources, that most of the things that I thought I knew uh, weren't true at all. And so I want to talk to you about some of the things uh, that I did learn. 
Financial panic uh, is, uh, it, w the book of Revelation comes up quite a bit when financial panic uh, happens. That fear, that terror, what's happening? You know, where is the number of the beast? Uh, who is the man of peace coming from the east? But um, this actually is a, it's a familiar image of uh, financial panic as a volcano. It also looks a little bit like my students getting midterms uh, exams from me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, because lay some context for these uh, panics. And the first thing I learned uh, that somewhat surprised me, I thought I understood the beginnings of the political party system, but I didn't really understand at the time how important um, banks were to the two-party system that we first have between the Democratic uh, Republicans on the one hand and the Federalists on the other. I knew that there were conflicts between Hamilton on the one side and Jefferson on the other, and I knew that the First Bank of the United States had something to do with it, but I didn't really realize how fully the Democratic Republicans as an organization depended on their conflict um, with the banks. I'm going to step back really to the Constitution um, first. When the U.S. is fighting for its survival as a United States uh, under the Articles of Confederation, uh, there has to be a way of paying soldiers. It's difficult to pay soldiers when you don't yet have a government. It's not clear what your resources are going to be. And so the Continental Congress issues these. These are called Continental Dollars. And they were, they were the first attempt to, um, uh, by the Continental Congress to pay the Army um, the plan is that ultimately you're going to get gold and silver, 40 Spanish uh, milled dollars for each $40 uh, note like this. Um, this, is, this is the plan initially as the revolution is being fought. Um, quite quickly, the British government figures out that it's this deficit spending that uh, the, US, the United States is, is engaged in. Uh, and so they begin um, setting up printing presses and reproducing continental dollars and selling them in taverns uh, for pennies on the dollar uh, so that other people can uh, start to circulate these notes. Um, the, the continental dollar fails miserably. And lots of people who are holding continentals, including soldiers, and people who, who uh, provided provisions for the United States Army uh, and, the, and the Navy are very upset about this failure. Some, there's something called the 40 for 1 Act, which is passed in the 1790s. And it says, basically, for every $40 continental note, the federal government will provide you one dollar, one Spanish male dollar. And this is, this is the state of inflation then in the 1770s and 1780s. There's a tremendous anger at this new federal government operating under the Articles of Confederation. And this is where we get the conflict that helps to forge the Constitution. There's a lot of controversy about taking an independent collection of states and forging them together into one United States Congress. Um, but ultimately, and the Federalist Papers, as Hamilton and Madison and others try to persuade people to uh, form a United States government, they're the point that they pack, the thing that they point to again and again is the failure of the continental currency. They say Congress can't, doesn't have funding. Congress needs to get funding to have an army, to have a navy, to defend this nation. And so the Congress then is uh, funded, uh, the Congress then is built in the, in the period of the Constitution um, with the help of, of Alexander Hamilton and, and Madison and others. Um, there are a couple things in the Constitution that are sticky issues that no one wants to deal with. One of them is who is going to issue money. 
now that the continental do dollar has failed so miserably, who's going, to, who's going to print currency? And so the states are forbidden from printing currency, but it's, the federal government is not uh, allowed to pr print currency either. No one knows for sure who's going to print currency in this new, uh, uh, new country, but, but um, that's what Hamilton's kind of plan is. And in 1791, just after the Constitution has been signed by all the states, he comes up with a plan for the creation of the first bank of the United States. This bank is going to deal with the problem. It's going to issue currency, and it's going to take up all of the various notes that have been issued by, uh, if, if you're a contractor or you're, a, uh, you're a, a, an army colonel, you need provisions, you write a note saying, we will pay you in three years or four years for the, these provisions that you provided. Um, the, Cong the First Bank of the United States is going to collect all these notes, it's going to con uh, convert them into U.S. bonds, and it's going to sell those bonds in Europe. Europeans will buy this debt and pay the United States back and, and get paid by the United States uh, in, a, in a regular uh, series of payments. That's the plan behind the Bank of the United States is to say, take the debt, make it regular and ordinary in printed uh, bonds like this here at the bottom, issue those in Europe, and Europeans will buy these things and, uh, with the expectation that the United States will, will pay those debts. Um, Alexander Hamilton is... The, of course, the first Secretary of the Treasury, his assistant um, is William Dewar, uh, also an important proponent of um, the Constitution and the First Bank of the United States. Dewar, it turns out, is holding most of those notes. Uh, and so as the First Bank of the United States is created, Dewar becomes the nation's first millionaire. Uh, as he is holding all of these notes, which have been got down to 20 or 30 cents of the dollar, he then uh, unloads them to the First Bank of the United States for one dollar on the dollar, and uh, he, he then collects a tremendous uh, bounty. Now, Jefferson and Madison are very upset about this. They're very concerned about this, not just because there's an insider in the Treasury Department who's effectively benefited from the creation of the First Bank of the United States, but also because of how this First Bank of the United States got formed. How did the First Bank of the United States get formed? How did it pass through Congress? There was so much controversy about the dollar notes. Well, it turns out that half of Congress received stock in the First Bank of the United States in 1791, when no one else could get it. Now, I know you're surprised that there would be that kind of corruption <laughs> in Washington, but there it is. And so this anger, this is, and so Jefferson is, is appalled. He's shocked by this. Um, shocked, I tell you. And he, he decides then to move against his former friend, Alexander Hamilton, in an expedition along the Hudson River. Uh, uh, Jefferson, Madison, and this person on the, on the left, uh, Livingston, uh, Chancellor Livingston, Robert Livingston, uh, is uh, a large landowner. Um, the, let's see, where uh, you can actually see his estate. This is the Hudson River behind us, and this is where ha Hamilton, uh, sorry, Madison and Jefferson come up to visit um, a uh, uh, Livingston in this, what's called the Botanizing Excursion of 1791, and this is right after the bank is formed, and they agree that they're going to form this new party that's going to bring Hamilton down. 
They call themselves Republicans, but their, their uh, opponents say that they're Democrats. And Democrats is a kind of a curse word uh, in 1791. It's, it's a word you'd associate with the French Revolution. Uh, and so this is really the birth of what we, of the, it's not quite the modern Democratic Party, but this is, this is, this first party is built entirely around the Bank of the United States, entirely around opposition to the Bank of the United States in an attempt to stop it. Um, in uh, the first newspaper that's created, national newspaper that's created the journal, I'm going to go back here a couple of, the National Gazette comes out in 1791. Uh, the first, uh, the last page in the National Gazette lists the stockholders in the First Bank of the United States, and that's where people um, discover that the biggest stockholders in the, second bank, the First Bank of the United States are, uh, are in Congress. So this party politics, then, is the genesis of the first two-party system between Democrats on one side and Federalists on the other, um, is, uh, draws lots of controversy and makes uh, the nation's uh, first political party. And that conflict over the bank, the role of this national uh, banking infrastructure is going to drive conflict th uh, between the parties for the rest of uh, our time. Now, luckily, there's no conflict between the Democrats and the Republicans now on issues about uh, the Federal Reserve, say, or anything like that. But there was a time. Um, all right. The other thing that I learned is that the First Bank of the United States, it starts in, its charter is in 1791. And its charter is supposed to end in 1811. It's a 20-year charter. And the idea is that it's an organization that is going to stop. Uh, Hamilton wants to get the, a recharter for the bank. Um, Jefferson, after he becomes president, he cannot, get it, he cannot get the bank destroyed, but he can assure that it will not be rechartered. And in 1801, once Jefferson becomes president, it's clear that this bank will end in 1811. So how does it make money from 1791 to 1811? Just, just reselling American debt is not such a great idea. There is a tremendous American debt uh, in fighting this war, and it does, um, it does provide uh, credit for the United States. Um, how does it make money? Well, it turns out the great thing for the United States, the reason, in fact, that the First Bank of the United States is as successful as it is, um, is because in 1791, after the bank is created, in 1792, there's a brief financial panic that's connected with the Democratic Republicans' attack on the Federalists. But by 1794 and 1795, there are a couple of things that have happened. One, the French Revolution has gotten violent, and now lots of Europeans are scared, wondering where to put their investments, wondering where to put uh, available capital, and putting it in Europe as Napoleon's armies are starting to develop in 1800, 1802, 1805, uh, seems a dangerous proposition. As those uh, Napoleon's armies march across Europe, lots of Europeans with lots of capital are looking for a safe investment, and it turns out that the First Bank of the United States looks like one. So there's a lot of capital that's suddenly available from Europe. The biggest stockholders uh, by uh, 1795, 1796 in the First Bank of the United States are actually Europeans. They're buying this debt because um, they believe that the U.S. is safe. The other place that you would have put your money is, uh, if you'd had a lot of capital in Europe in the 1790s, is a place called Saint-Domingue. Uh, a uh, sugar colony in uh, the French sugar colony, but Saint-Domingue has become Haiti uh, in a violent and bloody conflict that follows the French Revolution. So the U.S. suddenly looks like the one safe place to put one's money. Now, there's a lot of money flowing into this Bank of the United States. There's a lot of investment in the Bank of the United States. Where is it putting its money, though? Well, it turns out the Napoleonic War is a great thing for Americans because the Americans are effectively not fighting in this war. It's not on either side. The Federalists tend to take the, um, the, uh, the side of the, um, 
the powers opposed to Napoleon, the uh, Democratic Republicans tend to take the side of, um, of France. But what, Brit what America can do is re-export. America's become the smugglers around the world. We have the reputation in the 1790s the way that the Greeks did in the 1950s and the 1960s. We're the rum runners, uh, the drug smugglers, uh, the gun runners of the 1790s. What happens then is um, uh, when Britain blocks France's access to um, its colonies, um, France has no way of bringing ships with sugar and coffee and all these other sorts of things to France. Uh, likewise, uh, France under the Continental Plan is blocking British shipping and blocking British access uh, to ports. And so neither Britain nor France has access to their colonies. So what the U.S. does is it stops off in a French colony, buys, picks up some sugar, and then touches the port in uh, um, someplace in New England and then brings it to France. Uh, it stops at a British colony, picks up some goods, touches a port in New England, and then uh, brings it back to England. And so effectively, the U.S. is smuggling. The, U um, the British um, Prime Minister says the, the British um, Parliament is kind of ablaze about American smuggling in this controversy, that, the, that they're trying to block French uh, ships, but the U.S. profits by this international war. And um, by, in, in, by 1805, uh, the U.S. is importing and exporting three-fourths of what Britain is importing and exporting. Britain, had, which had been the, the kind of importer-exporter in the world, is suddenly being displaced by Americans who are smuggling these goods. They, they'll take a ship, they'll, um, they'll touch the Isle of Man, everyone will get off the ship, they'll change their names, they'll burn the orders, they'll create new orders, they'll get back on the ship and then come into a French port uh, and claim that they have no idea why there's uh, 700 cases of sugar uh, sitting on the ship. Okay, so this is uh, a war in disguise, as it's called. The, the, uh, James Stevens calls it this. So I said that the bank, First Bank of the United States, its charter ends in 1811, and um, none of the Federalists can get this bank to um, uh, rechartered. Uh, the Democratic Republicans have made sure that that's the case. And so in 1811, the, sec the first bank in the United States has to fold in the, in the midst of this, this, um, this boom uh, that's taking place during the war. And as the first bank of the United States um, folds, it, it pays back all, everyone who's invested in it. Everyone who's put money into the bank, first bank of the United States gets 100% of their investment back by 1811. It's, that, it's been that profitable to do this business. Now, the trouble is that the, a lot of the biggest investors in this First Bank of the United States were British merchants. And once British merchants no longer have an interest in U.S. smuggling, there's no direct interest in this, Parliament rapidly shifts in 1812 uh, against the United States. And what we see then is the War of 1812, as Britain is no longer willing to negotiate uh, about these controversies over American um, uh, not piracy, but American uh, smuggling. And so we, what we get is the War of 1812. And the War of 1812 uh, does a few things. Uh, first, of course, it, it's the burning of Washington. They burn Baltimore. They call it a nest of pirates, uh, the uh, British do. Um, but the War of 1812 is a kind of a comical war. That is, uh, the U.S. cannot generate the troops necessary to fight this. It cannot uh, get the munitions it needs. It cannot get the ships it needs. Why? They don't have a bank. And so this is, the this, is the, this is the mistake that the Democratic Republicans make, is that by destroying this First Bank of the United States, there's no longer a way to sell American debt. And if you can't sell American debt, you can't fight a war. 
And so this is the serious problem that puts the U.S. in such a precarious position uh, during the War of 1812. And so gritting their teeth, the Democratic Republicans sit down and decide that they have to create a bank. Uh, the thing that the whole De the Democratic Party, Republican Party was built on, um, uh, dis uh, on destroying, they have to create a second bank of the United States. Luckily, they find a very strong nationalist named John C. Calhoun. Let me say that again. A very strong nationalist named John C. Calhoun to write the charter for the second bank of the United States. And he uh, writes this initial charter for the second bank. Um, I want to talk, I, I'm not going to explain the Panic of 1819 to you because it's very complicated, but I will show you a genre painting that was pub, uh, uh, finished in 1821 about the Panic of 1819. And this has been uh, shown before, but it doesn't, it's a genre painting, and I just want to show you the course of the Panic of 1819 as it's described in this image. Now, it's a genre painting you read from left to right. So we'll start here on the left. This is the revolutionary generation. He's wearing um, a smock, the bottom, which suggests he's either a blacksmith or a butcher or something like that. Um, and... Um, He's under, he, was a, he served under Washington, which is why he's under Washington's portrait here, George Washington's portrait. Uh, but he's now retired. His, his belly has gotten a little bigger. His hair is white. And the war, that war, the Revolutionary War, is over. And so now the boom that follows, and we see people dancing. And this is, the, this is supposed to be Pittsburgh, uh, western Pennsylvania, which at this point is a pretty remote town. And yet, if you look at the clothing that people are wearing, they're dressed in very ornate dress. They've got... Um, the man in the center is wearing a long coat, but everyone else is wearing what's called a monkey jacket, which is a British uh, short coat that they would have bought uh, on loan from uh, a country store in the 18-teens. Um, and this is the height of uh, the American boom. We see a map behind, and that map behind is now the U new U.S., which is expanded with the Louisiana Purchase all the way to the Mississippi and beyond. And then we see the next image on the right is the War of 1812, just concluded. Uh, and the boom that follows. And, and uh, what follows here is a, this, is, this is supposed to be a, a public house or a tavern. There's lots and lots of drinking. Everyone's happy. Uh, the, 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 um, we move down to the um, boom that's, that's suggested by the champagne that's just becoming uncorked. The long hangover uh, comes in 1820. Uh, hanging above his head is uh, the... Um, uh, the Farmer's Almanac. The Farmer's Almanac says 1820 on it because by, and, and you have a Almanac in, in, for 1820 in 1819. So this is just as the panic uh, is, is starting, the long hangover has begun. Um, it's literally and figuratively a long hangover. Um, the Panic of 1819 is one of the worst uh, downturns in the, 20th, in the 19th century. Uh, it's a five-year uh, depression. And in Philadelphia, um, so many um, of the public hospitals get merchants who uh, have been drinking seriously for uh, a little while uh, in the midst of this panic. And as they're put in the public hospital, they, of course, can't drink anymore. And so the stages of withdrawal uh, they can see for the first time with dozens and dozens of cases. And they come up with the term delirium tremens, DTs, uh, to describe. And delirium tremens is discovered in 1820 as all of these kind of drying out merchants uh, are, are recovering from uh, the, the uh, brief period uh, of the boom. After 1819, the shift from 1819 to 1837, uh, we see a shift away from flour. America had been the biggest exporter of flour uh, in the world, is, is sending it mostly to the Caribbean. That ends in 1819 for complicated reasons. And from 1819 to 1837, the U.S. shifts drastically 
exports cotton, and cotton becomes the key uh, export. And so the American's financial base then is in the second bank of the United States is going to be cotton. Um, my students groaned when they saw this uh, image, so I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to spend too much time with you, but just give you a sense of how this credit chain is established uh, through cotton. What you have on the right is our banks in Britain who are terrified about earning less than 3%. Uh, they're willing to do almost anything to earn 4 and 5%. And these banks in the north of England um, then will take what are called Lombard Street bills uh, from Lombard Street in Britain. Lombard Street bills will then be um, discounted um, by the seven houses, which are seven British houses that are bringing cotton from the US into Britain. And they're also bringing manufactured exports from Britain back to the United States. Um, they use an instrument called the Sterling Bill of Exchange. Um, the Sterling Bill of Exchange is the, effectively uh, what we would call, uh, in banking terms, M0. It's, the, it's worth more than gold. It's, it's effectively a long-term, it's a 90-day or 180-day note from a very well-known uh, banking family like the Barings or the Browns. And this goes then to agency banks, which are throughout the American South uh, in particular. The agency banks are then lending to slave owners. And what we see is a drastic boom in, in, uh, along the Mississippi River as slave owners using capital that's ultimately coming all the way from the north of England, uh, ironically coming from abolitionist <laughs> north of England. Uh, many of the people in these banks do not actually know, understand that this chain of credit is ultimately landing in uh, the Deep South. Um, the Bank of Louisiana issues a $10 note uh, using the Sterling Bill of Exchange. And on the back it says 10 and Deeks, of course, because it's the Bank of Louisiana. And um, uh, steamboat operators uh, refer to the region in which the $10 note can travel as Dixieland, uh, the place where you can use a $10 note from the Bank of Louisiana. And this is where the term Dixie comes from, is this area along the Mississippi River initially where um, cotton is traded and where the $10 notes uh, break. So, so this long chain it's important to understand that there is a long chain of credit. It depends on cotton being a fairly stable price. Cotton prices are going up from 1820 to 1837 fairly regularly. There are almost no dips in it. Everyone depends on what's happening in Britain, which is Britain is exporting cotton around the world, in India, in Africa, in China, all over the place. And this cotton is ultimately, most of it is coming from the United States. This cotton credit chain is attacked in two places in 1837. Uh, first, in the Bank of England, they say, this is going to break. This is not going to work. And in the early part of 1837, this, the Bank of England declares that um, the rural joint stock banks uh, will not get, um, should not depend on the Lombard Street bills, and they say that there will be no credit established to the seven houses. That, on the same day, Andrew Jackson um, declares that, passes what's called the Specie Circular. And the species circular says, you can no longer buy land with, um, with notes. You now have to pay gold or silver for it. And so that cotton chain, that credit chain that extends all the way from the north of England to all the way into the deep south uh, is fractured in two places in 1837. And what we see is the mother of all financial panics. It's a very, very long one. It's, it extends the 1830s to the 1840s. Um, Southern states, to try to bail themselves out, this will look, this will look familiar, I think, to you. Um, uh, southern states inside the United States um, decide that the best way to get themselves out of this panic is to issue lots and lots of sovereign debt. 
Uh, and so Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Michigan, and Illinois, just like Greece and Italy and Spain uh, in 2007 and 2008, issued lots and lots of debt. Uh, to try to back themselves out of this panic. And after a few years, uh, the shadow of the 1837 panic is in 1842 when the, no one can pay these bills. And Southern, uh, all this, most of the states in the Midwest default on their loans in 1842. Uh, that default is, uh, leads uh, most uh, Britons to call Americans deadbeats. They say not all of these Southern state bonds that we bought now you know, in an attempt to recover from this panic are now, are now effectively worthless. John Quincy Adams is so upset about this. He's in Congress. He's so upset about this. He proposes that uh, because the U.S. government, unlike the, um, the EU, is not going to cover up uh, or backstop uh, these bonds. It's not going to uh, pay for Mississippi or Louisiana's uh, bonds. And if Mississippi and Louisiana aren't going to pay, they're not, then the uh, bondholders will not get paid. John Quincy Adams is so upset about this that he suggests that um, all um, British, all American gunboats be removed from the Mississippi River new, near New Orleans and, uh, and um, Mississippi uh, to allow British creditors to come in and seize assets uh, along Mississippi and Louisiana. Uh, for some reason, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't succeed very well. Um, <laughs> There's a, there's a, th this, this panic, this 1837 panic is a very important, was a very significant one. It, it helps to bring about the collapse of um, the Democratic Party. In the wake of the 1837 panic, there's a new party that's created uh, by, in part by the Second Bank of the United States. It's called the Whig Party. And the Whig Party is going to be um, the party that's going to defend the Second Bank uh, against uh, Jackson. One more thing to say about this is that when Mississippi repudiates on its bonds, it says the Governor McNutt says um, that these bonds are mostly held by Jews. We will not honor them because they cannot, uh, that, you know, they, will, they are discounting uh, these bills. They're not really worth what everyone says they are. It's a very kind of anti-Semitic rant. Um, the Senator Jefferson Davis supports Governor McNutt's decision to not allow, the, to not force the state to repay its debts and this, that, to repudiate its debts, to not pay them at all. Um, 20 years later, 18 years, 19 years later, when Jefferson Davis becomes the president of the Confederacy, the Confederacy goes back to Europe to get lending. And um, they refer to President Jefferson Davis as the repudiator in chief. Um, and they say, uh, Rothschild says, I know every man of capital in Europe, and none of them will lend you a red cent. Um, so this is part of the failure of the Confederacy. It has a lot to do with this downturn uh, in the 30s and 1840s, the failure of the southern states to ultimately pay uh, their debts. Jackson's war against uh, the bank, which is depicted as a, as a monster, he's, he sees it as, a, as an insane instrument. He's, he's concerned because the bank, uh, as he sees it as trying to move into the, um, the cotton commodity chain, he sees the second bank of the United States as a kind of threat to his presidency, and he's right. In fact, I mean, one of the things that I say in this book is that Jackson was certainly, a, uh, President Andrew Jackson was certainly a paranoid man. Uh, he was certainly, he was willing to threaten anyone with pistols who, who questioned his honor. But there was an organization that was devoted uh, to, to possibly unseating Jackson, and that is um, the Second Bank of the United States. The Second Bank of the United States formed uh, in the 1820s. Uh, emerges in the 1830s. Nicholas Biddle, on the upper left, is concerned when Jackson's first presidential address says he wonders about the constitutionality 
of the Second Bank of the United States. He's basically reproducing what Jefferson had said about the First Bank. He's just not sure it's constitutional. Biddle then reaches out to this man on the uh, lower right, uh, oh, goodness, whose name I've uh, is, is entirely blanked from my memory. Uh, he, he runs the uh, New York Courier and Inquirer, um, James Watson Webb. And James Watson Webb had been an insider in Jackson's party. Uh, Biddle reaches out to him, and he's, uh, James Watson Webb is, runs the most powerful, highest circulation newspaper in the U.S. He's having some financial troubles, and Biddle uh, offers to help him out of his financial uh, problems with a loan of $50,000. Two days after the loan, one day after the loan, uh, is worked out between um, James Watson Webb and Nicholas Biddle. James Watson Webb uh, opposes Jackson and supports the Second Bank of the United States. He says it is constitutional and that Jackson is wrong. Jackson kicks him out, and James Watson Webb builds up a party in opposition to Jackson. And they call themselves, the term that James Watson Webb uses is the Whig Party. To, to come up. And so what, the, what happens at the Whig Party is that um, the Whig Party, in some sense, is the, the sort of shadow of the Second Bank of the United States. It's an institution that believes that, this, um, that the Second Bank of the United States is a vital institution. So many of the largest planters are not Democrats. They're Whigs. They're people who believe that Jackson's attempt to destroy this bank uh, led to uh, the downturn that was the Panic of 1837. All right, so from 1819 to 1837, we have a, boom, a bust in 1819, we have a bust in 1837. Br um, people in Britain say, we're never going to lend to those friggin' Americans again. You know, this, they, they just cannot be trusted. Um, but then along comes Stephen Douglas with a whole new strategy. He says, well, why no mortgages? Okay, let me explain to you how mortgages work. Um, the first collateralized debt obligations were not formed in 1980. That's what the pundits will tell you. That's what most financial analysts will tell you. The first collateralized debt obligations were formed in 1851 with a new strategy. Congress, you remember, did not have any resource. Back when it was under the Articles of Confederation, uh, the Continental Congress had no power. Congress, under the Constitution, is given a blank check in all the Western lands. So all the Western lands are given to Congress as a blank check. That's how Congress is going to spend money uh, from then on. Um, Congress is sitting on this land, but it has, it has so much land, it's not really a simple way of doing it. And so what they decide to do is provide land grants to railroads. So a railroad will build um, a railroad from uh, Hannibal, Missouri, to St. Joe, Missouri, or from Chicago uh, to Mobile. And along the line of the railroad, the, la the land, Congress will give land to the railroad. The railroad will then offer mortgages, to five-year mortgages, to people who settle along the railroad. Those mortgages um, will then be back, uh, piled up together and converted into bonds, called mortgage bonds, and sold in Europe. And so basically, as people pay off these mortgages over a period of years, uh, the bondholders will get their money back. And so this is a collateralized debt obligation. It's, there's, it's, it's, there, you don't have tranches, but what you have is a whole bunch of American mortgages that are then converted to bonds and sold in Europe. This is how a railroad works. We think of a railroad as you know, a choo-choo, right? But a railroad is not, in fact, the train. Uh, the railroad is a mortgage bank. The railroad is an institution that collects land, redistributes it, sells it in chunks over with mortgages, and then issues bonds in Europe for that process to take place. And so it, the, the railroad is, in fact, a financial intermediary. 
uh, very much like a mortgage banker in SNL uh, today. Why? Because Americans who had been stung in 1819 and stung again in 1837 say, we will not have a bank that lends on mortgages because you can't trust those things. Well, this is where the new kind of uh, institution comes along, uh, the land grant. Railroad, and so what we see is the proliferation. These are these are land grants in the, in the 50s and uh, 60s and 70s. Uh, much of the U.S. Uh, railroad corridor is built in this way, with Congress giving the land to the railroad, the railroad then reselling it on mortgage. Um, there's one group of people that are upset about this new method of uh, delivery of land, and it's this group called the F Street Mess, headed by David Rice Acheson, uh, the man on the left. What Atchison sees is that this plan works fine in 1850 and 51 when it's initially established. There's some in the north, south and some in the north, but this is much more successful in the north than in the south. And what it does is it fills up northern states very, very, very quickly. Lots because the railroads are selling tickets to western land. You pay a little bit down, you get a ticket, the ticket takes you all the way to your land uh, to, to where your land is supposed to go, and then you pay it off in mortgages. So you're paying off your ticket and you're paying off your land over the space of five years. Lots and lots of Europeans get in on this. Uh, folks with a little bit of capital, a little bit of cash, a little bit of growing know-how settle in the 1840s. And where do they settle? They settle in Illinois, in Indiana, in Ohio, in places like this where these railroads are established much more quickly. And so what happens is that northern representation in the House of Representatives gets much faster, grows much faster in the 1840s and 1850s than it is in the South. The South is unable to match this kind of uh, land-based development. Um, and so David Rice Acheson, who had initially participated in the, in the construction of a Missouri railroad, turns around in 1850 and tries to put a stop to uh, these land grants. And in 1851, uh, sorry, in 1852, Congress the uh, Democrats in Congress, the Southern Democrats in Congress, say we will not allow another Yankee Railroad to go into um, the South. They stop all appropriations for land grant appropriations for the railroads. Uh, they call it a Yazoo swindle. They say that this is this is just a way of swindling uh, Europeans out of their cash. This is just a way of settling uh, the Midwest. This is just a way of making abolitionist territory. Um, then the uh, fateful transformation uh, takes place. I told you now that, the, the, that effectively the railroads have all this land that's along their railroad corridors, given them by Congress, starting in 1850, 51, 52. In 1850, at the same time, Congress passes something that no one ever talks about who writes about the 19th century, I can guarantee you, uh, the Swamp Act of 1850. Swamp Act of 1850 says that um, if a state is in need, um, find swampland inside of its state, it can um, condemn the land as swampland, drain it, and then sell it. So basically the state has access to any swampland, it drains the land and then uh, sells it. The trouble is, and so, so basically this is a sort of carte blanche for states, find some swampland, uh, put a ring around it, and uh, drain the swamp and then you can sell it. Well the trouble is the people who decide whether land is swampland or not are state assessors. So. Arkansas declares the top of the Ozark Mountains to be swampland. Um, Illinois declares all, the, all sorts of flatland to be swampland. And so what you see then in, um, the, in the land office is a real problem for the people who are supposed to parcel out this federal land. The state is claiming this land and the railroads are claiming this land. The same land, the best land. 
and no one could be sure whether it's swamp land or not without actually you know, riding out on a horse to see whether the land is swampy or not. And even then, it's not clear. And how can the land office possibly visit every acre of these states and determine whether they're swampland or not. So it's a really serious problem. From 1852 to 1857, all sorts of controversy, uh, all sorts of legal suits brought uh, against them. And so um, the, in Kansas and Nebraska, the conflict over Kansas and Nebraska, uh, you'll remember is that the land in Kansas is split and uh, you know, one, one part becomes Kansas, one part becomes Nebraska. Kansas is supposed to have um, uh, has northern and southern settlers uh, both settling in Kansas at the same time, both of them armed, both of them fighting each other. The Union um, folks, the, the people who are anti-slavery, do win in Kansas. They settle there more quickly. They are able to claim Kansas uh, territory. And uh, the, the southern constitution is, is uh, thrown out and the northern constitution is accepted. By 1856, it's clear that southerners in the F Street mess, David Rice Ashison and others, uh, who are behind the attempt to settle Kansas as slave territory have failed. But they have one parting shot. The, land, the Swamp Act of 1857, a follow-up to the Swamp Act of 1850, uh, passed very quickly the last day of Congress. And what it says is, you know, if the state says it's swampland, it's swampland. What this does is invalidate all the land, potentially, that the railroads have been issuing on bonds in Europe. All of that land is potentially now uh, in, ownable by the states. The states rush to declare every acre they possibly can uh, to be swampland, including the land that's condemned by the railroads. And so this is the Panic of 1857. Initially, Europeans dumping these bonds, uh, which are based on mortgages, which cannot be sustained. This is, this is the Panic of 1857. Um, the Republican Party, a new party, is, uh, you know, is, is, is in serious uh, trouble. Um, there's lots of controversy over who will be the next uh, candidate. Luckily, for the folks who are behind the railroads, there's one person whose specialty is Swamp Act claims against the railroad, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln's work from 1854 to 1857 had been in the area of Swamp Act claims. He says that the Swamp Act is a piece of infamy, um, and he believes that it's, it's, it needs to be overturned. And so a dark horse candidate becomes someone who's backed strongly by the folks connected with the land-grant uh, side, uh, railroad side of the Republican Party. He gets uh, their backing. They believe, ultimately, that he's going to overturn the Swamp Act if he becomes president, and um, the rest is history. Um, that's, those are some of the things I learned. The fifth thing I learned in this, uh, besides the coming of the war, is LIBOR. Um, you've heard a lot about LIBOR. I will not, I mean, I could put you to sleep in an instant uh, by talking about LIBOR. I will not do that. Um, but I will tell you that um, there are a lot of people who cared about what we call, now call LIBOR. Among them, Andrew Jackson. Among them, Grover Cleveland. Um, European lending and American borrowing are very, very intimately connected and have been since 1790. Um, American uh, uh, borrowing depended, as I said, on a war taking place in Europe where you needed uh, some place to put your capital, and it turned out that the U.S. was a pretty good place uh, in 1791 and 1792. Um, uh, in the 1830s, that's, that's, it's all about cotton, um, and in the 1850s, it's all about Western land and mortgages. The um, process, then, of American borrowing European lending uh, is, is one in which basically 
Um, there's a, what's called the Bank of England rate. It's published in every newspaper uh, starting in uh, 1793 in, uh, Europe, uh, in American papers. Um, and it says what the rate is for the Bank of England. Ba and the, basically, the Bank of England sets the rate. It says what, what it is, what a 90-day bill of exchange will cost, what it will cost you to borrow money from the Bank of England. Bank of England is the lender of the last resort. When the Bank of England raises its rates, the rates go up in the United States, only much quicker and much higher, because effectively Americans are borrowing from Europe through all of these uh, downturns. And so what you see is, I, I only got here from 1866 to 1876 just because I ran out of time typing. Um, but if we go from 1792 to uh, 1890s, what we see is the Bank of England's rate and then the U.S. rates in almost every case being above it, right? And so um, this is when people say when the Bank of England catches cold, uh, the U.S. gets the flu, what they're talking about in the 19th century is this, that when rates go up a little bit in the United States, they go up a lot in, uh, sorry, a little bit in Britain, they go up a lot in the United States. The only thing that's going to change this is the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve is going to recenter lending in the U.S. Uh, rather than in Britain. So what I learned is that um, the 1870s is a period of tremendous opportunity for the United States. After the war is completed, the U.S. is exporting wheat in huge quantities, one, uh, no, five bushels of wheat for every person in Britain uh, by 1868. Uh, the U.S. is built a kind of railroad corridor, from uh, five railroad corridors competing from Chicago to New York. It's then pouring this wheat out and sending it into Europe. Um, the trouble is that there's been a mortgage boom in Europe uh, in the 18, uh, latter part of the 1860s in Vienna, Paris, and Berlin. 1868 to 1872, all of them depending on being able to sell wheat to Britain. And so when U.S. starts to be able to sh uh, ship wheat cheaper than Britain, uh, than anywhere in Europe, uh, it leads to a downturn. Prices drop uh, between 1870 and 1872. The price of wheat drops 50 percent in international markets. The biggest change in the price of food, biggest drop in the price of food uh, since the Neolithic era. It's a massive transformation. It has to do with this cheap American competition. So you would think that America would be sitting pretty uh, in 1872, and it certainly is. If you look at American export figures, they're phenomenal in this period. The trouble is the Bank of England is ultimately setting the rate. And when banks fail in Vienna and Berlin, as you see here in uh, the May of 1873, uh, the Bank of England is effectively acting as a lender of last resort. It doesn't want to be caught in a situation where um, there are a lot of loans held by these Vienna banks and these Berlin banks and even these Paris banks that aren't going to be paid. And so they raise the rate to borrow money. They increase it. And for the first time ever, they raise it to 8%. First time ever in the 19th century, they raise it to 8%. Well, in America, that's disaster. In America, an 8% rate is unprecedented, an 8% rate to borrow cash. And so all of the people who are, who are in fact, J.P. Morgan, all of the other transatlantic bankers, the Barings, the Browns, the Morgans, all of these people depend on borrowing in the U.S. at one rate, uh, b borrowing uh, in Britain at one rate and selling in the U.S. at another rate, lending at, at the U.S. at another rate. When that rate goes drastically up, they get short on cash. The only person who's not short on cash, the only person who doesn't do any um, uh, immediate borrowing is J.P. Morgan, and he, in fact, uh, succeeds. Uh, another, another group that's uh, succeeded quite well in this period is, is the Lehman Brothers. They were also had uh, relatively little um, investment. 
All the other banks uh, are in serious trouble. Jay Cook fails in uh, 1873, and then all the other major American banks uh, collapse in 1873. Ironically, because of the very success of the United States, because international trading patterns have changed, but because ultimately the American lending rate sits on top of the British rate. When the British rate goes up because of an external panic, we see uh, a panic worldwide. In fact, a panic in the 19th century and the 20th century is not a difference, is not a drop in the stock market. A panic is a rapid increase in the interest rate, the rapid increase in the price to borrow money. That is what uh, ultimately a panic is, and that is the uh, situation we've seen ourselves in the last uh, few years. I, I um, will conclude, I guess, in July of 07. Well, yeah, let me, let me t end with a story. I, um, in 1873, I finished a, um, yes. In 1873, I, um, no, sorry, <laughs> let me start over again. I was a very young man in 1873. Um, uh, my, my grandmother told me about the Panic of 1873. She hadn't lived through it, but her grandparents had. Her grandparents raised her. My grandma kind of raised me. So I knew a little bit about the Panic of 1873 um, from that, and uh, I, had uh, wrote in a piece in, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, September 1st of 2008, and I said, you know, this, this downturn, that we're, this thing that we're seeing happening here is not like the 1920s. Everyone's talking about the Depression, but this is very much like the 1873 Depression. A mortgage boom, then a mortgage bust, then banks fail, and then the stock market fails. That, that, that um, progression uh, basically caused by shocks in the interest rate is what we're seeing now. Uh, that's why uh, the rate, the London Interbank Office rate is going up rapidly, even though the Treasury rate is staying stable. This is what we should be scared about. This is the thing that we should be concerned about. And then I said, predicted three or four things that might happen if I was right about the Panic of 1873. So I'm a historian, right? This is the Chronicle of Higher Education, not uh, on everyone's uh, front. But it turns out that fund managers read the Chronicle of Higher Education. I didn't realize this. And um, I predicted three or four things that might happen, and then they all happened. Uh, in the space of a month and a half. Um, the, the, I predicted uh, th things about gold and sh shortage of cash and which firms might do well and which firms might do poorly. I, it was a stupid thing to do, I think, but uh, in retrospect. But one of the things I said that was that cash on hand would be the most important variable in this crash, unlike the 29, that the firms that were, had high cash on hand would be in better shape. I didn't realize that you could um, trade stocks with, um, that using Google Finance, you could figure out how much cash on hand any publicly traded stock uh, does. And through September and October, uh, stocks, businesses that were high cash on hand did very well, and businesses that were poor cash on hand, like Chrysler, uh, did very poorly. So people started in September 2nd of 2008 circulating what they called the Nelson algorithm. <laughs> which was to buy stocks that were a high cash on hand, short stocks that were low cash on hand. And some people made millions of dollars in the midst of the downturn of September, uh, the, the couple of weeks that followed September of, of 2008. So I started to get calls from uh, analysts in September 2nd of 2008 from banks um, asking me for footnotes, if you can imagine, uh, for my piece in 1873. Where did you get, how do we, wait, how, where, what? Where did it come from? You know, t tell me some books that I need to read. Then I got calls from, from uh, and emails from people in big banks, UBS and others, and they said, our economists don't know about these other financial downturns. They don't know about 1873. They don't know about 1893. What, what should they read? What do they need to look at? And, um, 
in any event, that's that's was the um, sort of genesis of that book. Is the thing that these banks were asking for ultimately was uh, what um, what is it that explains a panic? How do we understand a panic? It's not just liquidity; it's something else. You know, what's what's the core, and that's the sort of origins. Uh, of this book. I gave the talk about the Panic of 1873, I'll conclude with this, in a big bank, and I won't name the bank, in Hong Kong. They flew me out to talk about the Panic of 1873, if you can imagine. Uh, it was in 09. And um, uh, I, I was uh, t talking there, and they, they um, it was about three quarters of the way through my talk, and somebody gets up and said, all right, all right, all right, we hear about the 1873. You know, did you make any changes in your stock portfolio based on what you, well, you have any skin in the game. I, I didn't know what he meant. You have any skin in the game? And I thought, is he challenging me to a basketball game? I don't know. Just, 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 he said, well, do, do, no, did you, do you make any changes to your investments? And I said, well, I'm not an investor. I just, I just have my you know, retirement um, fund. And he said, well, did you change your retirement fund? And I said, yeah, well, actually, earlier in July of 07, I read that the European Central Bank was injecting $10 billion to the other banks because the rate was going up, but no one knew why. And, I knew from the 19th century that when the rate goes up and no one knows why, that that's a time to be concerned. <laughs> Bedlam, right? They all start yelling at each other. I'm at the top floor of this 50-story hotel. Everybody's in suits and ties. Everybody, it's quiet as a church. And then everyone's yelling at each other and pointing at each other. This is a lunchtime uh, talk. And the talk is over. You know, I, I have no idea what's going on. And then somebody shouts, you know, when did you get back in the market? And, uh, and, and so I, I finished the talk, and I, I said, well, what? I don't understand. What, what just happened? And they said, well, when you got out of the market, um, it, and it, if any bank had done what you'd done and gotten out in July of 07 and got back in in the middle of 09, they would have doubled their capital. No bank in the world did what you did. Um, in fact, most banks in that period lost 50% of their assets uh, in general, most international banks. Um, and so what they, <laughs> what they did was they bought, I have written five books, one's about railroad, have you heard Railroads in the Confederacy? One's about the legend of John Henry, one's about social history of the Civil War. They bought 50 copies of all those books and flew them to Hong Kong. <laughs> and so we, right now, someone is looking through John Henry, trying to figure out, make stock picks. Uh, based on this, uh, this kind of idea of magic. Uh, but it's not magic. It's not magic. It's, it's really a story about interest rates. And it just, you need to change your lens a little bit uh, when you're thinking about financial panics. That interest rate is often the thing that's uh, affected. We, we, have, we don't really have a lot of good guides for interest rate anymore. Um, I, I was talking to somebody who was a banker, and he said, uh, yeah, we still use LIBOR as our guide, but we, now it's LIBOR plus four you know, for lending. And so effectively what you're seeing is that lending rates are going up, but there's no kind of way of measuring that, no, no way of seeing that. Um, that's, in a way, kind of the thing that I saw, which is that, is that ultimately the rate to borrow money turns out to be a thing that tells you when panic is. Panic is when people are concerned about their assets and they hold cash. And that happened throughout the 19th century, uh, and it's happening today. Thank you so much. Do people have questions? Yes. Uh, 
yes. So um, did, did everyone hear that question? So what, were there common threads besides just the interest rate, and were there common threads in the recoveries? The central thing that I saw in each of these, uh, these, these panics was uh, a relationship between a borrower and a lender that becomes stretched out. Like we saw on the cotton exchange where there's now three institutions between the borrowers in the south and the lenders in the north of England. A similar thing happens with the banks and the railroads, where the railroad is the intermediary and there's another intermediary, there's another intermediary. And so what happens is in, in these kinds of lines of international credit, uh, there's a similar thing with wheat, and I won't go into it because it's very complicated in the 18-teens, but in each of those cases, lenders think that they can protect themselves from uh, downturns by diversifying by buying a, a range of assets. And they believe that a complicated enough asset will, if things go like this, will more or less keep them at this level, right? So this, this modern portfolio theory, in a way, is, is this story, that when some things go up, other things are going to go down, and therefore you need to broadly diversify your portfolio. And you can create sophisticated financial assets that will protect you um, from those downturns. And that's the collateralized debt obligation is that what we saw in 2008. And so the, basically the idea was that you could bet against this, that, that uh, there'd be these tranched mortgages and that some of the mortgages would fail, but others would succeed. And ultimately, the CDOs would pay off. In the 1819, it's the Sterling Bill of Exchange. Uh, in the 1837, it's the Cotton Bill. Uh, and so in each case, there's a sense that a kind of hubris that, that institutions, banks and others have, that there is some financial instrument that can protect them from downturns. Um, a hubris that no matter what happens, we're safe, we're hedged, we're um, prevented from this problem. And, and it becomes more and more sophisticated, the story, but in each case it's equally bogus. It doesn't uh, ultimately uh, succeed. And what happens is the very sophistication of the instrument is the cause of the problem, because then you can't tell the difference between the assets that are going to pay and the assets that aren't going to pay. My father was a repo man in 1973. I saw him do repossessions of televisions and stereos in those, uh, in the, that was in the oil shock, in the period of the first oil shock. And there, there's what, what has to happen is the repo man has to show up and see who's good for the debts and who's not. It's a grim and ugly thing. It's a horrible thing to watch, uh, a repossession. And the belief is that somehow you can back yourself away from that process buy a sophisticated instrument, but the, what happens is the very sophistication of the instrument makes it opaque, and so you do not know which is good and which is bad, and everyone then dumps uh, all of the bonds because no one is sure which ones are worth uh, something and which ones aren't. We saw this with the CDOs at first, but then it spread into the other bonds uh, after 2008, and what we saw is the yields you know, dropping in both, uh, in both cases. Other, I hope that's, uh, the shoots though, the, um, the downturns also, um, the upturns. The one, uh, the green shoots that emerged in these downturns are often folks with cash on hand. Uh, and so what happened in the, spa in the space of the 1870s is that um, uh, Rockefeller and John D. Rockefeller, um, uh, Andrew Carnegie, and Cyrus McCormick all had large quantities of cash on hand in, uh, during the downturn. And because they had cash on hand, uh, partly this was because they had long-term contracts. The Rockefeller and um, uh, Carnegie had long-term contracts with the Pennsylvania Railroad, which meant that they were sitting, they had cash when no one else had cash. These long-term contracts meant that they were getting continual payments, even when the Pennsylvania Railroad was effectively getting, becoming bankrupt. Um, they bought their competitors in this period, and what we see is real consolidation, of in industrial consolidation uh, in the middle of the panic. 73 to 79 is a terrible downturn 
in terms of unemployment, whoops, in terms of unemployment, in terms of all these other sorts of things. But if you look at GNP and GDP and those sorts of things, what, we, what you see is a kind of counter-cyclical industries uh, emerging and consolidation emerging as people buy up their competitors. We did not see the same sort of thing uh, in 2008 and 2009. The consolidation is actually happening now. Uh, what we're seeing is a lot more uh, industrial consolidation, in part because consolidation now needs banks, and banks have been sick for, for about three or four years. Yes? Uh, two questions. One, is your uh, retirement account still invested? Or have you <laughs> and the second one is, I mean, we've all run through these near zero interest rates for a long time, Japan and other yes. major uh, areas. What's that forecasting for us? Um, yes. Um, I, don't th I don't think we're in the Japan situation. I do think the, you know, the, the question to ask about um, stimulus is, uh, is, is there a kind of reliable and believable um, up, uptick that you can make from a stimulus or not? Um, the best stimulus that New York provides in the midst of the panic of 1819 is to build the Erie Canal. Uh, the bank, the first bank of the United States is not, uh, second bank of the United States is in, in some trouble. The, um, uh, what the New York decides to do is it's going to tax the, uh, it puts a tax on auctioneers and it takes the tax on auctioneers and um, it uses that to build a canal to connect to the Great Lakes. And when the canal is uh, finally completed, uh, the, the idea is that those, those bonds will be paid off. It, it's a tremendous success for about 35 years for the, um, the, the city of New York. So um, my sense is that... Uh, what happened in Japan is a lot of the stimulus was, you know, building, uh, you know, pouring concrete into rivers and things like that. And that's just not, it's giving people jobs, but it doesn't have any definable benefit. The definable benefit there was um, a corridor that connected the Hudson River to the Great Lakes. And Great Lakes where food is cheap and manufactured goods are expensive. Um, New York where manufactured goods are cheap and, and food is expensive. Uh, you join those two things together and what you have is, you know, massive economic development. So my sense is, is I mean, I, I don't want to get too political here, but my sense is that the, um, there are lots of missed opportunities with the current stimulus. The one great opportunity, I think, uh, and this is somewhat, is the, is the railroad corridor uh, consolidation, the, the light rail. Um, it's, I know that's, that's you know, considered um, problematic because it is the federal government getting involved. But the light rail um, plans from Richmond to D.C., I thought, um, would, it, there's, a, there's an obvious benefit there, and then uh, a light rail, you know, the light rail corridor along the New England. But I think what you need to do is you really need to have a kind of story about what the return on investment is going to be. You, you do need federal stimulus, but it needs to be in something that has a demonstrable benefit that you can, that you can point to. And I think, um, you know, I, I think that we, there have been a lot, a lot of lost opportunities. For me, that was the one, uh, given the other uh, downturns, that was the one real uh, opportunity that, that, uh, that didn't happen. Oh, I'm sorry.